Hello, and thanks for downloading this podcast. My name is Karen Killalee. I am a partner and head of the employment team at Maples and Calder, Ireland, the Maples Group's law firm in Dublin. Before we dive into today's subject, just some housekeeping as usual. If you are listening in from your usual podcast app, you'll find any resource documents and speaker information in the description. If you've clicked on the media player link sent to you by email, you can find this information in the notes section. This podcast contains a general overview of managing change and managing absence in the workplace. It does not constitute legal advice. If you have a specific situation or question, please do seek tailored legal advice from one of the team. And last but not least, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. So I'm joined again today by Kiran Longig, who is an associate on the employment team. In today's episode, we are continuing with our series on the theme of managing change. And last time in our last podcast, we looked at managing change and specifically redundancies. But in this episode, we're pivoting a little bit and we're looking at a different type of change. And that's the change in the workplace arising out of employees being absent for whatever reason. So it's something that employers really have to be equipped and ready to handle and handle properly. Let's look at the key concepts connected to managing employee absences. We've tried to anticipate some of the sort of most common questions and we're going to look at probably five or six different issues. And as usual, we try to do this in about 15 or 20 minutes. So we are going to look at, first of all, what an employer's sick pay obligations are. Then we will touch on dealing with absences during probationary periods. We're going to look at referring employees for medical and occupational health assessments. We'll take a little look at terminations for capacity reasons. Also going to talk about contacting employees during long-term absences. We will also look at the issue of whether an employer can fairly terminate an employee's contract of employment on the grounds of capacity or illness or ill health. We will look at how much contact an employer can have with an employee who is on a long-term absence. And then finally, we'll wrap up by just having a look at the various avenues of redress that an employee may have if an absence management situation is, is not in fact properly managed. Okay, so Kira, let's maybe get started with the sick pay piece that I just mentioned. Can you just talk us through an employer's obligations in terms of sick pay? Yes, absolutely. So an employer currently has a statutory obligation to provide an employee with statutory sick pay as set out in the Sick Leave Act 2022, provided that an employee has 13 weeks service. This is payable at the rate of 70% of the employee's normal rate of pay, up to €110 per day. Statutory sick pay is payable from day one of the absence and the employee's employment rights are protected during this period. Currently, employees have an entitlement to such paid sick leave for three days per annum. However, this amount increases incrementally each year until it reaches 10 days paid leave in 2026. As such, employers have been future-proofing their absence policies by offering at least 10 paid days of sickness absence to avoid annual amendments to the absence policy. It's worth keeping in mind that employers tend to offer above the statutory minimum in order to attract and maintain talented employees in the market, with more senior employees being offered between four to 12 weeks paid sick leave per year in our experience. We recommend that employers offering enhanced sick pay rates in excess of the statutory entitlements ensure that contracts expressly state that occupational sick pay is inclusive of statutory sick pay 
and any illness benefit that the employee might be entitled to. It is common for employers to have an income protection policy that, for instance, comes into effect at 26 weeks of absence and which entitles an employee to receive two thirds of their salary. If such a policy applies to employees, the employer should ensure that employees on sufficiently long periods of absence are kept informed about what they're entitled to. Thanks very much, Kira. And just to pick up on one of the points that you mentioned there about the sort of crossover between sometimes more generous contractual sick pay entitlements and then the the statutory entitlements. So we've just had a very recent decision from the Workplace Relations Commission, which uh, are, are the sort of Irish specialist employment tribunals. And it's the decision of Leshinsuka versus Musgraves. In this issue, the WRC looked specifically of the non-application of the Act to employers who do have more favourable sick leave schemes. And specifically, they looked at the issue of a sick leave scheme, a contractual sick leave scheme, which had a three day waiting period. The complainant failed in her claim that her rights under the Act to statutory sick pay had been breached in circumstances where she was forced to wait, if you like, for three days before she could avail of the contractual sick pay scheme. And the reason she failed was because the WRC found that overall the sick pay, the contractual sick pay that kicked in, if you like, after that three-day waiting period was much more generous than statutory sick pay. So that was a really welcome clarification. I think a lot of employment law practitioners and employers were were trying to understand how the WRC would interpret that. So watch this space. That's the first case that we're aware of under the legislation hot off the presses. Moving on to the next piece, what about probationary periods? What happens when periods of sick leave arise at sort of an early stage in the employment relationship? Based on a common sense interpretation of the legislation, it's possible for an employer to add on periods of absence as an extension to the probationary period, although any extensions should be notified to the employee in advance of the probationary period expiring and only be of a length equal to that of the absence. Under the European Union Transparent and Predictable Working Conditions Regulation 2022, as a general rule, an employee's probationary period cannot now be longer than six months. However, this period can be extended if an employee is absent from work during the probationary period. The 2022 regulations state that only certain periods of absence will extend the probationary period, such as periods of maternity, paternity or statutory sick leave. It is, however, reasonable to assume that a period of sickness absence during an employee's probationary period would permit an employer to extend the employee's probationary period by the length of time equal to the employee's period of absence. Thanks, Kira. And obviously, employees who are in the probationary period and employees who are out of the probationary period should be treated consistently apart from teen waiting periods before sick pay is payable. But certainly, it would not be advisable to treat anybody who is on probation less fairly or differently or in any manner where the employee could could assert that they have potentially been discriminated against on the basis of their absence. We'll come back to that theme in a moment. The issue of referring employees for medical and occupational health assessments. Can you just talk to me a little bit about that? Is there anything that we need to consider in that regard? Yes, absolutely. So an employer can and should refer an employee for medical or occupational health assessment if there are concerns that need to be addressed to allow the employee's safe return to work. However, in order to allow for an employer to insist upon an employee undergoing a medical assessment at the employer's request, a provision should be included in the contract of employment reserving the right to do so. 
A referral means that any return to work can be assessed properly and a report can be produced that will highlight any accommodations that the employer should make to assist the employee with their return to work. That's great, thanks. And again, I suppose picking up on on my earlier comments about retaliation and anti-retaliation, as as we know, when the protected disclosures legislation was amended uh, earlier last year and then came into force this year, one of the actions on the part of an employer that is capable of constituting penalisation is sending an employee to an occupational health assessment without good reason for doing so. There always needs to be a good reason for doing so. And again, we would always encourage employers to ensure that they conduct themselves consistently and that nobody is, for example, sent for a very, very early medical assessment in circumstances where normally there would be a practice of perhaps waiting for four or six weeks to do so. Okay, so let's uh, jump to the next piece that we, we flagged that we would look at. And this is the sort of thorny issue of terminating a contract of employment on the grounds of capacity. So we have a couple of very clear and helpful cases that guide employers on on how best to manage this. So Kira, do you want to talk through those? Yes, indeed. And one of the landmark decisions that it's worth discussing is the decision of Humphreys v Westwood Fitness Club. This decision involved an employee who worked as a childcare assistant in a creche and her return to work after a long period of sick leave. Upon the employee's return, a number of incidences occurred at work which caused her employer some concerns as to her performance of her duties. After providing the employee with a number of verbal warnings in respect of the performance issues, the employer dismissed the employee without obtaining medical or psychiatric advice in respect of her medical condition. It is notable that the employer did not carry out any risk assessment in relation to the employee's condition, despite forming the opinion that the employee was a danger to the children she was employed to look after. In this case, the employee claimed that she had been discriminated against on the grounds of disability and she took a claim under the Employment Equality Act. She claimed that the employer had failed to follow proper procedures in considering what, if any, special treatments or facilities may be available to allow her to carry out her duties. The employee was successful in her claim and she was awarded compensation of €13,000. Thanks, Kira. It's interesting, the Humphreys and Westwood case is a really old case, but it still is absolutely the authority and the clear guidance that that as practitioners, certainly we rely on to get those sort of basic and first principles as to how to properly prepare yourself to to have that conversation with an employee and to start managing that that process. Okay, um, let's turn to something else, actually, that we do get quite a lot of questions on. And this is about what is the appropriateness of contacting employees while they are on sick leave and different jurisdictions have different protocols and expectations. Could you just talk us through, Kira, from your perspective, what's the best guidance for employers in, in this situation? Firstly, an employer should check with employees if they're happy to be contacted during periods of long term absence. If an employee does not want to be contacted during such absence or is not in a position to be contacted for whatever reason, doing so only on a need-to-know basis is a good principle to follow. For example, in individual or collective redundancy consultation processes, an employer should make sure that an employee is kept informed and given the opportunity to participate in the consultation process only if they would like to. Perfect. Okay, thanks for that. All right, so... Once the absence has concluded or the employee has furnished a medical cert which 
certifies that they are fit to return to work. How does an employer go about managing that return to work, particularly where the employee has been absent for for quite some time? After a substantial period of, of absence, a return to work meeting is recommended before the employee recommences work. And this allows an employer to evaluate and check in with the employee to ensure that the employee is ready to return to work. For example, the employee might benefit from training on existing systems or retraining where new systems have been introduced in order to facilitate their return to work. Alternatively, the employee might benefit from a phased return to work on reduced hours initially before hours are gradually increased. Depending on the reason for the employee's absence, it might be necessary for the employer to organise an independent medical assessment to be carried out before the employee is deemed fit to return to work. So, for example, in a situation where an employee's circumstances have changed such that they are now living with a disability or have suffered an injury, which has had a significant effect on their physical capabilities. Yes, absolutely. And sometimes we would see in practice as well, there are situations where either there's not good clarity sometimes, maybe from the employee's medical team or me- medical advisors on precisely what is going to work in the employer's workplace by reference to the demands of the role. So sometimes in those situations, it may be necessary to postpone the return to work pending getting clarity either from the employee's medical team or sending, as you said, the employee maybe to the company's occupational health advisors so that they can make a more specific assessment and give more specific guidance by reference to a particular job description, the demands of the role, the way the workplace is is set up and so forth. So it's definitely important to tailor the approach to each individual situation. One other key issue that I would like just to take a few moments to talk about is the concept of appropriate measures or what's sometimes referred to as reasonable accommodation and what that means for employers. So In terms of the statutory obligation, an employer under Section 16 of the Employment Equality Acts is required to take appropriate measures to facilitate employees with disabilities accessing and participating in employment unless those measures would impose a disproportionate burden on the employer. Now, we have some good case law in this jurisdiction, which helps employers in Ireland to better understand their obligations and at what they have to do to help employees with disabilities to have equal access to employment and equal access to training and then advancement in that employment. So just to recap, the statutory definition of appropriate measures is contained in Section 16 of the Employment Equality Act, as I mentioned. And broadly speaking, it provides that a person who has a disability is deemed to be fully competent and capable of undertaking any duties in a particular role if the person would be so fully competent and capable on the provision of reasonable accommodation. So uh, reasonable accommodation is is then referred to as appropriate measures. They're sort of interchangeable terms. Now, as I mentioned, an employer must take appropriate measures to enable a person who has a disability to have access to employment, to participate or advance in employment or to undergo uh, training. And the employer must do that unless the measures would impose a disproportionate burden on the employer. And in determining whether or not a burden is disproportionate, what the courts will do is they will take into account the financial and other costs that are involved. They will also take into account the scale and financial resources of the employer 
And it will also look at whether there is any public funding or any other state subsidy available that could support those appropriate measures. So just as I mentioned, that there are a couple of good cases that, that are worth looking at, which really do help employers to understand the scope of this duty. So one of the very well-known cases is the case of Nano Nagel versus Marie Daly, and that's a Supreme Court decision. And it, 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 in a very lengthy and detailed ruling, it, it, if you like, distilled the whole concept of appropriate measures down to the following principles. And, and really what that decision teaches us is, is the following. First of all, when looking at appropriate measures and, and looking at how you accommodate an employee who's coming back to work and, and they have a disability, an employer is expected to look at the whole role and consider whether some of both the core duties and non-core duties associated with that role could be redistributed or altered so that that would facilitate the employee returning to work and taking up that role. The second piece to note from that decision is that the employer's obligations, as we already mentioned, are contingent on the measures not imposing a disproportionate burden on the employer. And this in practice means that an employer is not required to wholly redesign a role where that would in fact place a disproportionate burden on the employer. The third point to note is that ultimately it is a matter for the employer to decide on what is or is not an appropriate measure. Okay, so it's not a matter that the employee is entitled to dictate, if you like. But generally, we would say it's recommended that there be a consultation with the employee on proposals related to appropriate measures. And that's particularly where a rejection of those measures could lead to a termination of employment. Another key point from the decision is that an employer really must, where it is concerned about the costs of appropriate measures and it thinks that it has a disproportionate burden, that employer does need to follow up whether or not any state funding or you know government subsidy could be obtained to defray some of the cost of putting those measures in place. Finally, it is also very clear that the planning and the decisions and the the discussions around the reasonable accommodation and appropriate measures really should be documented in case they're open to challenge. So finally, just before I close on this analysis of appropriate measures, it's worth mentioning that there was a relatively recent Labour Court case, HSC versus O'Shea, in which the Labour Court overturned a decision of the Irish Workplace Relations Commission to award €65,000 to a woman who had worked as a paramedic and she claimed that her employer had not put in place appropriate measures to facilitate a full return to work. So the Labour Court overturned the lower court's decision and it ruled that the employer had in fact discharged its duties. And it noted that the employer had relied on regular occupational health reports. Those reports had provided an adequate level of guidance on her, the employee's ability to perform a range of essential duties inherent to her role. And as soon as the reports indicated improvement, the employer started to engage in a comprehensive program to facilitate her return to service as a paramedic, but they had insisted that she be able to fulfil all of the core tasks of that role in order to do so. And, and the court found, the Labour Court found that that was fair and that the employer had in fact discharged its its duties. Okay, so having looked at that, Kira, can you just take us through the avenues of redress for an employee where things go wrong? 
Well, as we've discussed, employers need to manage any return from a period of absence carefully. And where an employer fails to reasonably accommodate an individual with a disability, an employer is exposed to a disability discrimination claim, which can be made before the WRC under the Employment Equality Act. The compensation award for a successful claim in in such cases can amount to a maximum of two years' pay or €40,000, whichever is higher. The case of Mary McGalley versus Kerry County Council provides an incredibly recent example of an employee who received this maximum award of two years' salary to compensate for disability discrimination by her employer and failure to make reasonable adjustments. In this case, the employee developed issues with her back and she had taken time off, which required a two-year period of absence before her doctor advised in a report that she could commence a phased return to work with notable accommodations to her workspace, including an inflatable back cushioned chair and a mat to allow her to work comfortably. Despite ergonomic assessments and occupational health reports, which contained the recommendations, the employer did not make the reasonable accommodations. The employee also met with resistance when she requested an increase in her working hours, despite recommendations from her GP that she could do so. The employee's complaint was heard by the WRC and it was decided that she was able to successfully make a case that her employer had failed to reasonably accommodate her and would the reasonable accommodation that would have permitted her to return to work after her period of absence. Uh, that's all very clear. Plenty to think about and plenty to consider for any employer who is invariably going to have to be equipped to and be ready to properly and fairly and transparently handle employees, uh, particularly those who are absent for long periods of time from the workplace. So for now, thank you for listening to the Maples Group Employment Law Podcast. In our next podcast, we will be continuing with the theme of managing change. And in particular, we'll be looking at performance and what do you do when performance dips and if it dips periodically or if it dips permanently? How does an employer safely and properly and reasonably manage that. So if you have any questions or queries on any of the points or uh, covered today or in any of the cases that we mentioned, please do reach out to one of the team. Thanks for listening and subscribing.